Lubricate first, ladies and gents, before you get rough fucked by this book. <laughs> Hello, you are listening to Great Culture, the podcast where we talk about wine, pop culture, and feminism. I'm Kim. I'm Sam. And we hope you enjoy the show. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the novel Yellow Face by R.F. Kuang. But before we get into that, we've got some wine and we're quite excited because it's wine that we've never had before on this podcast. Or have you ever had this anyway? No. No. It's orange wine. It's orange wine. It's wine and it's orange. Yep. Clues in the name. That's that's it. That's, that's <laughs> the taste notes also yeah. we need to know. Yeah, we have chosen an orange wine. Reasons being... We wanted to do an orange wine for ages and this book has a colour in the title and that's good enough for us. Yeah. The links are tenuous, <laughs> the wine better be good. So Sam got this wine from Good Pear Days. Good Pear Days. It is the Domaine Bonnet Hutto Bonnet Orange from the Loire Valley in France, made in 2020, a terrible year. <laughs> the label itself is actually all in French and I don't speak French, as you may have gathered from this podcast. <laughs> so they have very kindly sent us a little crib sheet with some taste notes in the story about the, the vineyard. I don't know if our listeners have ever ordered from Good Pair Days, but I think they do this for all the wines that they send you that includes the story of the vineyard, the tasting notes, the sort of key points of the wine. And then on the back, they have a food pairing and a recipe to pair it with that you can also scan <coughs> to see other recipes. You can scan a QR code to see other recipes. So this wine pairs with, apparently, roast golden beetroot with za'atar and chickpeas brilliant I which mean, sounds great sounds lovely anyway the tasting notes are this is a lovely textural and bright orange wine beautifully poised there is a tightrope of tension between laser guided acidity and rich flavors of grilled nuts baked almond and a stone fruit accent as with all of the wines from bonnet Huto, there is a wonderful vein of saline minerality running through the spine of this wine utterly delicious saline minerality laser guided acidity Mm, laser guided it's it's like the thing in mission impossible yeah so there is a lot of words there to say that <laughs> the fruits and tastes of apricot peach and blood orange other flavors include vanilla aromatic beeswax and grilled nuts and that it's apparently should be ready to drink it is a dry fruity wine medium bodied with low acidity and low tannins mm. Sam, would you like to do the honours? Yeah, sure. Yeah, should point out that Good Pair Days did not send this to us. We bought it from them. But I am quite impressed with their marketing strategy, which is basically you buy wine and you get a free fucking hamper which with a yeah. cheese board on it. And I'm like, yeah, yeah that'll, that'll, that'll do me. That'll but work. Good Pair Days, if you do want to send us more wine to feature on your podcast... Yay! Do it, please. We'll, we'll happily accept. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, it smells weird. Oh, that smells really weird. It smells like... Peaches. It reminds me of a flat cider. It tastes, it smells like cider. You're yeah. so right. It tastes more bitter than it smells. Yes. It smells very sweet. It does smell very sweet. You're getting that laser focused acidity. I don't hate it. No, it's. You're absolutely, you absolutely nailed it that it tastes like flat cider. Yeah. Yeah. And by which I don't mean. Cider Fizzy that's cider flat. that's gone flat, but like still cider that's yeah. meant to be, meant to be still. So and the percentage is twelve percent. So it's still cider that's going to fuck you up. Cool. Oh, it's biodynamic wine as well. Cool. <laughs> so an interesting experience. Same can be said about 
our topic for mm. today, which is Yellowface by R.F. Kuang. This is a recent publication published in 2023 and a bestseller across the globe. It's been nominated for just about every book award that it's eligible for. Yeah. It has a really striking cover, obviously a really striking title, and it's all over BookTok, mm-hmm. Bookstagram, etc., etc. And we read it. We did. We did that. Sam, thoughts, Hi. feelings. Thoughts, feelings. Yeah, so this is not what I expected. I have picked up a tendency recently of just buying books <laughs> for fun. You text me on Monday and you're like, <laughs> I accidentally bought three books on Monday. I, I, I fell into a bookshop and came away with three books by mistake, yeah. Yeah, there has been a bit of that. But buying books that I don't actually know much about and then just being like, oh, surprise me. And mm. I bought this because it was everywhere and everyone said it was great. And it was great, but it was not what I was expecting. It was completely different to things I've read by the author before the one thing that I read by the author before but yeah it definitely makes you think this book like it it was one of those ones I finished and I was like I don't know how I feel about what I've just read what did you think yeah I think the word that I used to describe it first and foremost was compelling Mm. I listened to this book essentially in one sitting and it's an eight hour Mm. book and obviously I always listen to audiobooks a little bit faster (laughs) and I was deep deep in a puzzle but <laughs> I didn't want to stop listening to it. It was definitely compelling. And yet someone asked me, did I enjoy it? And I was like, I'm not <laughs> sure if I enjoyed it. I don't no. think you enjoy this book. No. I think you experience this book. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important to note that we're talking about a book that really challenges racism and specifically, like, white feminism. Yeah as two white women drinking wine on a podcast. So we're not going to get everything right, but we definitely looked at this book as something that would challenge us and and necessarily so. But yeah, it was what I expected because I'd already heard about what the plot was about. And I'd heard about it from reputable sources whose judgment I trust and who have, you know, praised it. At the same time... I don't think I knew that it was it was from the perspective that it was and that the main character would be so misguided, wrong-footed, wrong in general, unlikable. (laughs) Yeah, I guess when I first heard about it, I was thinking like, oh, cosy mystery almost, which obviously Mm. I'm not thinking that it was going to be a cosy mystery. But the first story of that plot line was like fun romp thriller, cosy kind of thing. And it's very much not that. It's very scathing. And that didn't necessarily surprise me because I didn't really truly think that it was going to be fluffy but it still caught me a little bit off guard just because I guess I wasn't really expecting to be reading a scathing book on a Sunday afternoon but I'm interested because you said you've read another work by this author which I haven't Mm. what was it like coming to this book from her previous book what was different yes so I read uh, Babel so that is Dark Academia fantasy-esque novel set in an alternate Oxford where magic is controlled by making match pairs between words in different languages that mean the same thing and the way you pair them up and the etymology of the word affects how the spell works and it's about this group of four scholars who are well three of them are from areas of the world that were invaded by Britain and one of them is, is a is a British woman and it's about kind of their experience in this very unforgiving Victorian-esque 
alternate Oxford. And it's very dense and it's very, very well written, but it's like a, it's a chunker and it's, <laughs> it, it's nothing like this book. But although both are thought provoking and both do focus on attitudes towards people from Eastern Asia and Southern Asia, it's just, it's a, it's a beast. And this is not a beast and this is really contemporary. And I text Kim when we were reading this to be like, this is so contemporary that I feel like a fossil. Like the references in it are so are so twenty twenty three. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's completely different. And I was really impressed that she was able to create these two enti- entirely separate stories and genres. Do you think that it gave you literary whiplash? Had I just read Babel, yeah, I would say so. But because that was the first book I read this year, and there've been I don't know forty something in the middle. No, I think if if you had gone in being like I want more of the same you would have been disappointed that's really interesting so a good friend of ours I know wanted to read Babel and I don't know now whether she has but she kept sort of saying like I might read this or I might read this I might read Babel or I might read something else and for some reason because she has different reading tastes to me most of the time Mm. I was like I don't think I'm gonna like Babel I know nothing about it that was dumb because <laughs> listening to you describe it was like, oh, that sounds fucking great. <laughs> <It> <laughs> is, that. I guess, you know, we haven't really given a hit, a summary of this book. Yeah. So Sam, do you want yeah, to give us sure. a summary? Yeah. So I finished reading it last night. It is, so it's a story of Juniper, oh, Juniper Hayward, who is a Yale graduate author. She published her first novel and it was sort of very lukewarmly received. And so she is friends with this kind of, this very successful author who she went to college with, Athena Liu, who out the gate is getting sort of five-figure book deals, six-figure book deals, hits the top of the bestseller list all the time. Real, like, author verging on celebrity, beautiful, like, accomplished in all the ways. And they're sort of friends, but they're not close friends. It, it's The nature of their relationship sort of shifts a bit throughout the book to be honest but they're together one night they're just mucking around making some pancakes as you do and then they decide to have a sloppy pancake eating contest and Athena chokes on her pancake and dies and this is the first chapter of the book and it's just like oh okay yeah shit but while she's in the flat before before Athena dies Athena shows or Juniper finds Athena's latest novel which is a story about the Chinese labourers who came, were brought to France during the First World War to, you know, work and help sort of maintain the trenches and do lots of other things. For some reason, this ends up in Juniper's bag. She takes it, that's it. So after all this has gone down with the police and everything, Athena, Juniper gets home and discovers she still has the manuscript. Um, discovers. Discovers, oh my. Along with a bunch of other notes of Athena's. And, and she basically publishes the book as her own she does a ton of rewrites on it which she's very keen to get across in her narrative that it was started off as Athena's but that was hers and it's all about how this sort of propels her to the fame levels that Athena had but then the fallout of that and then the kind of infighting on social media the accusations accusations of plagiarism that come out of that and it's kind of goes from this almost farcical like crime thing it's like like a psychological thriller and it's really yeah it's a really interesting journey but i won't give away any more than that yeah is there anything you'd add yes only to add that what what the novel follows during her sort of rise to stardom is her experiences actually in real some of the real behind the scenes moments of publishing 
from you know the moments the, the lead up to the publishing how long it takes to publish a book the edits oh, the yeah. sensitivity readings the marketing budgets the promotional tours the decisions that are made for you and about you and with you and the pressures sort of of that follow-up as well so she she you know she goes on to publish other works after this and the first third i reckon roughly of this book is here is the publishing process and yeah that was the bit that i was like oh my god this is i i understand that readers will need this information if they don't know it because that's the point of this novel is to satirize that or you know kwang has said that that is something she wanted to do with this novel was satirize that process and call certain things out but oh, it almost lost me in that first bit because i was just a bit like okay cool you talk to me about marketing i found that really not that it wasn't the most interesting part but mm. what i found it useful for was how much it messed with your sense of time as a person who's mm. not super involved in in that industry and bearing in mind that so you're an author i am a, a person who listens to just about every other book podcast that there is we both know authors who have been published and we both know people who've worked in the publishing industry or still work in the publishing industry yeah so we're not unfamiliar with the the chain of events i think you're probably more familiar than i am because you also have a marketing background and i have creative writing degree in which that was part of yeah exactly yeah. my point being i found that interesting because i know how long it takes most mm. of the time from a book to go from concept to 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 publication let alone the amount of time it can take to write but even i kept being like the way that she kept talking about it and it was very rapid and yes i was listening to it at 1.5 speed but that's not that <laughs> fast people she'd trot it out very rapidly and then she'd suddenly be like well athena died eight months ago and you're like that's not or two years ago yeah, when she's like it's two years on you're like when and you're still you're still almost shocked that yeah that either she still hasn't fucking learned anything or she still hasn't been found out yeah. or she's still being like, Athena's such a bitch. And like, you're like, maybe you should go. Right. Maybe you should go. Maybe you should go to therapy. Yeah, how's, how's, how's the therapy going? So I agree with you that it's not the most interesting part of the book, but also, I mean, it was essential to set up certain parameters of the book. And I think that it was an interesting thing to give us a kind of sense of June as a person and what's important to her through that time period because for other people during those two years mm. it wouldn't be every single minute of every single day they'd have other things going on and she nothing. really had yeah. nothing every time that she said something about it, it's been five years or whatever that was the moment where I was like oh honey like <laughs> oh baby like go outside d- d- yeah touch grass yeah. like <laughs> Go and lie, lie down in the moss for a while. Yeah, so Juniper doesn't have a whole lot going on in her life. And she... I, I don't know if I'd ever say that she was lonely because she never seems to crave human connection beyond the adoration of of readers, of people. Like, it, it doesn't really seem to go beyond that. Did you find Yeah, that? I didn't think that she was lonely. She does talk about being lonely mm, at points. Yeah. But I felt that she... It was less about feeling lonely and more about feeling insignificant. She doesn't really talk about any other friends. And yet she's still like, oh, Athena and I were friends, but we weren't really friends. And it's like, well, she seems to be the closest person you've got. But do you think 
what do you think about the way Juniper behaved? Because I think that this book is very good at not giving you a clear-cut villain or hero. Mm. Everyone is quite shit. Everyone is um, awful. <laughs> but everyone also has certain reasons for Their being shit and acting the way they do. What did you think about the way she acted? Do you think everything, anything she did was justified or any of the characters did was justified? Do you think they were all just trash people who should get in the bin? <laughs> One of the, the biggest takeaways I had from reading this was like none of the characters were likeable which I think is a tawdry word. I don't need my characters to be likeable in order to no. empathise or, or enjoy reading them. No. But they they were all awful. You're reading this from June's point of view. Mm. And she starts off being a colossal bitch. Mm, yes. She's literally like, I spent time with her and she pays and she's so pretty and, and, and she's being all nice and it's all fake and horrible. And you're like... Why should I believe you? you're currently being a massive dick? Yeah. But the whole thing follows her narrative. And there are points at which you feel sympathy for her. But for the majority of the book, you're like, you've done a shit thing and you're dealing with the shit consequences. And yeah. she's the character that we get the most from, obviously, the most of, about her feelings. And I think Kwong does it really well where she kind of breadcrumbs you into almost feeling something for her and then pulls the rug out and goes, no, wait a minute, you're, you're feeling for this person. Someone. But it kind of... It felt like to me that it was mirroring that kind of echo chamber that things like social media, I feel like that's where the book takes you, but she does a good job of wrong footing you at every point where you're kind of getting into that almost as a, and I say this as a white woman, getting into that point of like, oh, maybe actually June has a point. And then Mm. she'll say something that's so irrevocably foul that you're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? It's the entitlement, like that, that is so prevalent in every way she communicates i may be putting myself on the block here by saying that i i even felt that at all but i did have those moments where i was like oh no maybe june like i'm rooting for you and every single time i i was yeah. like what the fuck like no absolutely not you're you're being an absolute bitch but i wonder whether that point skips over the heads of some of the people that are going to read this book i was critically examining my reactions to this book in a way yep. that some people maybe aren't so I don't necessarily think that any of the actions were justified or not justified because I think that one of the points about this book is that you can justify just about fucking anything. Yeah, it was it was very difficult to find, as you say, a likable character, not that there needed to necessarily be one. I think some of the things that you've raised about June are quite interesting because we've, we've just talked about her loneliness and how, or how she's alone and doesn't really have anyone around her other than Athena. So she doesn't have that that echo chamber or that group of people telling her that anything she does is wrong and not that everyone needs a friend to tell them when they're doing something wrong but like the fact that she kept the secret to herself she didn't tell anyone any Mm -hmm. of it until it got to this conversation with Jeff and then they went oh well yeah but she deserves it though because she stole my story she stole my life or whatever there was no there was no kind of tether there was nothing to stop her just completely rationalising everything in her own mind and so I think that's really interesting to kind of to look at her actions as a lonely woman only relying on a superficial feedback yeah or distanced feedback because not all internet interactions are superficial but all all the ones in June's life are distanced Yeah. yeah relying on that meant that she never really got 
any kind of constructive criticism. Exactly. She had no one to be like, girl, you're being crazy. But take a chill pill. pill. Go back to therapy. (laughs) And the other thing that I struggle with when you think about, you know, justification of of this, because I had the same thing as you, where I was like, there were points when I was like, oh, well, you know, maybe she's... And then, again... Immediate an action or a thought that was like, oh, for fuck's sake, I was nearly on your side, and then then you ruined it. But one of the key sort of, well, Athena deserves that I've done that I stole. It's just that I stole Athena's story because of this action. Is that there's a there was an experience that Juniper had at college where she may or may not have been assaulted sexually assaulted by someone she doesn't remember but she feels she has all these feelings about it and it's all very like it you know there's a line in the book about not everyone has a rape story but some people have that i don't know if it was rape but i didn't like it story mm. um and she told this to athena at the time and confided in her and then athena used that story for a prize-winning short story later further down the line mm. and this justification in heavy air quotes doesn't come up until like way later than the main events so it's, it's almost like you when you do that thing and you sit in your own head and you're like you come up with reasons that something's okay and you're mm-hmm. like yeah but but she did also do this to me and it's yeah. like if this was this much of an issue and if this was your main cause for stealing her story which it wasn't let's be honest it was jealousy yeah you would have brought this up a lot sooner so the one thing that could maybe make you see mm-hmm. the Jason. justification behind june's actions is not you know it's not why she did it i completely agree with everything you just said and it's two thirds of the way through the book and and 10 years through Mm. the way through their quote-unquote friendship i think that you know your point is absolutely valid like she sat there justifying it and again we're hearing this story from her point of view from starting from the day that athena dies yeah which means that from the beginning of this narrative june is trying to convince us that athena is kind of a bitch and yeah then slowly throughout the book she reveals that oh no actually they had these moments together at university they've known each other for so long they reconnected and that they fell really close and they they confided in each other and they Mm -hmm. celebrated their successes and that athena wanted to spend time with her and you know one of the last things that athena says is why don't we do this more we should do this more and that maybe athena felt a little bit sort of like she wanted to be friends with june but that june was always keeping her at arm's length and so it very much smacks of she starts this narrative by rewriting history to be like no athena was always a bitch that she, and she deserved it and then and i had nothing to do with it and then convinces herself that it was justified and that she was just inspired and for whatever reason maybe june did feel betrayed or maybe june was just kind of a look you know june went through a difficult time and and that's fair but also maybe june was just kind of a jealous bitch one of the things that rf kwang talks about in the guardian article that you and Mm. i read is that the question of who has the right to tell a story is the Mm. wrong question and I like that this book examines it from two sides because it examines it from the very obvious, it's on the title, it's on the cover page, side of who has the right to tell a story about Chinese labourers and Chinese history and Chinese experience. Is it a white woman pretending to, with an ambiguous surname of Song? Which she, is not even her actual surname, yeah, it's her middle name it's that she adopts name. when the novel comes out. Exactly. Yes. 
But at the same time, who has the right to tell an emotional story of... War survivors and... Well, I was going to say sexual assault. Sexual assault as well, yeah. Or all war survivors or anything like that. Just because it didn't happen to you, does that mean that it can't affect you? Or does that mean that it can't inspire you? I think R.F. Prong's point about who gets to write what not being the question is really solidified in those two two examples. Mm. Because the betrayal, quote-unquote, that Athena lands on june might justify that argument to her but from my point of view and from the reader's point of view it's just it's apples and oranges it's not the fucking same it's apples and orange wine <laughs> nice it's a really interesting point and it's a really interesting thing that that kwong says about who has the right to tell a story because yes you can argue and as she does in this article in this interview that if we all stuck to our own experiences, we'd all just be writing autobiographies. Fair enough. Absolutely mm-hmm. valid point to make. Also, Kwong is a, a Chinese-born American woman who is writing from the perspective of a white American woman who has stolen the intellectual property of a Chinese-American woman. So you're like, ah, I'm so in knots about what is... Like, who's telling the story and what right is, you know? Like, how can you... Like, yeah. There's layers on layers. It goes de- it goes right the way to the top. <laughs> so yeah, that I found that sort of inception level fuckery of like i don't know what to believe right now really interesting and also i thought the whole point about like who has who has the right to a story in terms of historical stories as well is a really fascinating one mm-hmm. anyone that writes a book around the first about the first world war that wasn't there you're profiting off, off people's suffering mm-hmm. Do, you should you be able to tell that story and then it, as i was reading this i was just like i don't know i don't know what's going on i'm so confused morally and oh, I, I can follow the plot but yeah, it, it gave me definitely a lot of questions. Gave me a lot of questions as well. And I think that's one of the things that Kwong yeah. talks about in her art, in her interview is that it's not it's actually not the author that's important, it's the story. Yeah. And I think that that's really powerful. And I think that this book does a really good job of examining that. And I think the ending maybe takes a look at that from a really cynical point of view it's very much the way that it could go but it's not the way that we want it to go which is almost why you know like I'm really glad that I've read this book and I'm really glad that we make a point of trying to read books outside of our comfort zones sometimes and one of the things that I think is most important about all of this is that that we don't pigeonhole which is Kwong's whole point about her career yes yes and now I think that we are going to (laughs) take a short break have a wee and we'll be right back to tell you how we're finding the orange wine and to go a little bit more into some of the ins and outs of Yellowface by R.F. Kwong And we are back from the break to talk some more about Yellowface by R.F. Kwong and also to drink some more orange wine. Kim, how are you finding the orange wine that we bought? How am I finding the Domaine Bonnet Houteau Bonnet Orange off of the Loire Valley? I think you'll find that's what I said, yeah. It's definitely what you said. I am finding this orange wine very drinkable, but your point earlier about how it tastes like still cider is just absolutely the vibe. Like, it's very, very drinkable, but I am surprised and I am suspicious. Suspicious why? 
because of the hangover that might come, yeah, that might follow. Well, because orange wine is essentially white wine, just with pizzazz. Yeah, yeah. And I don't trust white wine, so no. we'll see. We'll see how I feel tomorrow. How about you? I, I was sceptical. I was like, how different can a wine be? Despite the fact that white wine, red wine and rosé and green wine are all completely fucking different. Even so, I was just like, no, it'll be the same. It's so fruity. So fruity. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. You've got to keep it chilled, though. We've just put some ice in mm-hmm. it because it is warm, but not a good warm wine. So far, so good. Yes. yes. When you say so far, so good, like we don't know, we each have a glass. Of okay, yeah, well, we each have a maybe even half a glass it's gone down very quickly speaking of something else that went down quickly the book that we both finished in a single sitting i think (laughs) that it really speaks to the compelling nature of this book and i think one of the things that we've talked about is the genre shifting and i have heard this book and i think kwang describes this book as a satire Mm. and i think that that's one of the best descriptions that i heard of it how successful do you think it is at satirising the publishing industry? <clears throat> I'm sure that for a lot of authors reading this, they'll be like, that's so true. That's so like, aha, in jokes, in jokes. But I felt, I don't know if satirising the publishing industry is is what I came away from this book thinking it had done. I thought it was, because satire to me is like, Catch-22, make something so ridiculous it's, it's this kind of this hyper exaggeration to to point out the ridiculousness of the nature of what happens within that situation or industry or whatever and i don't feel like this was especially magnified and maybe that is what just one example of satire i think there's lots of different ways you can look at it but to me this the successes that juniper has after the last front which is the book she steals from athena didn't feel out of the realms of possibility and that's Mm. not the only thing that came up within the publishing industry but I I felt like it was more just like a it was a it was more more of a commentary Mm. maybe than a an absurd satire interesting well I think for for me the word that you said they're absurd is is the difference so I think of the absurdity level to be a parody and Mm -hmm. satire to be more subtle and underhand and snide because one of the greatest satirical writers ben elton jane austen my babe ah should have seen that one coming (laughs) yeah i mean it's what like 802 so obviously i'm mentioning jane austen you haven't mentioned taylor swift on the podcast or jane austen yet you know you're doing pretty well yeah get your bingo cards out guys ding ding yeah no yeah that's fair enough yeah Jane Austen's my experience with satire and specifically my experience with Jane Austen is is the subtlety and the the shade of it and the more that I sort of put those two things in comparison between how this book portrays certain characters and some of certain experiences as being more exaggerated to the point that you're like can people do people actually fucking say that the more and more i think of you know that comparison and putting it in yeah. that context and yeah. the more i'm like this is a fucking fantastic satire yeah. but i think also it it definitely felt whilst i was reading it like to think of it as satire made it more biting made it more scathing because satire for me is very much built on yes there is a subset of people 
in or experiences in this realm that are this and you're making them slightly more acute and you're focus focusing in on them but just because it's only a subset doesn't mean that it's not pervasive mm. and all too prevalent and a problem and that it it helped me make sense of this book when i cottoned onto that this is supposed to be a skewering at every stage made it a more palatable and also more interesting book to me yeah it's it's it definitely the cynicism of satire is very like it's a very cynical book when it comes to dealing with the publishing industry and i i agree and i think yeah really good point that not all satire is absurd Mm. i think what would have i think what would have made it better for me for that purpose would have been if the june who is not very likable who for, for all the reasons that we've already said essentially blames her agent blames publishers blames other people at various blames everyone but herself at points out the book for when she falls from grace for the fact that her first novel didn't do very well for all of these other things and then you're like oh no but actually the people that you're working with seem very reasonable normal people and so to have them be the voice of reason in this narrative I feel sort of undermines the look at this industry isn't it fucking fucked up and I know there's there's loads of different points like it covers loads of things like you know how some age, you know, some publishers will be like well we've got one person of this heritage or this mm-hmm. protected characteristic so we don't need another one like that kind of ridiculousness mm. but when it came to the actual people they were probably some of the more normal <laughs> So they are very level-headed in the stuff that they are presenting as fucking atrocious. Yeah. Like, just because they are presenting something terrible as if it's normal and right and correct doesn't mean that what they're presenting is an absolutely fucking terrible. And she also goes into real-world settings at bookshops and community groups and stuff. Mm. And I think that that, for me, was the moment where I was like, no, that's her echo chamber down that line and Mm, these people may seem like they're presenting a very normal and measured response but if you're outside of that world that's not a normal and measured response it's just that by the time that you meet these people or by the time that you've spent two or three chapters in june's completely unhinged brain where the ghost of athena is talking to her yeah obviously they seem normal but actually none of it is normal yeah very good point there's like three normal people in this book and they're all related to June and none of them want anything to do with her. On that note though, around sort of the fact that this does seem to skewer the publishing industry, whether you believe that they are presented as semi-normal or whether you think that actually it's just like poking a bit of fun at it. What do you think of the irony that this depicts a bestseller but is also a, a bestseller. bestseller. Yeah, I think it's really thought-provoking because I feel like Kwong knew that this was going to be a bestseller. And yes, you know, maybe that's 
reductive because every author who puts something out doesn't know what's going to happen with it maybe it'll flop maybe people will hate it but this is someone who has several bestsellers under their belt is very popular specifically on booktok bookstagram like we've talked about the things that she does satirize within the novel and so it's an interesting way of being like on the one hand you could read it as i'm going to use the publishing industry against itself and be Mm -hmm. like look look how fucked up you be people are going to read this and then what? Not buy books? Like anyway, but also it's it's about you know it's about representation and things within within the publishing industry as well. And there is more to it than that. But on the other hand, it's a bit, it's a bit arch, not even arch. That's not the word. But like, you're you're making this critique, you're highlighting all these flaws within the system, but you're raking in the dollar for creating this book and I have not seen anything to say that she's giving you know donating proceeds you know any royalties to charity like not that she has to that's fine but Why should she yeah. no exactly but it, it it's it smacks a little bit of what's the word hypocrisy yeah. I don't think it's massive property, but I thought that might be the word that you're after. It, yeah, kind of, but I also, don't, yeah, I, I don't want to. It's just a, it's a bit that. of a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Yeah, it's just a bit like, ha, how dumb, fuck you guys, but also, I'm at top of the bestseller list again. I've been nominated for a bunch of awards again. I don't feel like this book is far enough removed from her own journey for it to be as biting as she wants it to be. At the end as well, when she's talking about I'm going to write this expose and it's going to be a thinly veiled yeah. thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit. Like, alright, cool. what did you do? We need to go deeper. We <laughs> like, need to, yeah, like, what's going where's on? Where's the Netflix documentary about this? Yeah. And she's but, only like 27 as I well. Know. Like, oh, well, how can you be so bitter so young? Yeah. But yeah, I think that's the thing. You can definitely go round and round that. Mm. But you're in this industry but you're spearing this industry, but you're in this industry, but you're spearing this industry. And it's this idea, like, it's this feeling of just because you're aware of something, just because you were self-aware, mm. and just because you are going, look, I know this is happening, doesn't make you better? And maybe that's not fair, and maybe I'm being too reductive, but it's just... And I'm not, I'm not even mad. I'm, I, I don't know why I'm saying this like I'm angry that she said the best of the list and she's written this book. It's a great book. It should mm-hmm. absolutely deserves to be recognised. But, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think that's the point, is that I don't... I don't know that Us After a Bottle of Wine have the answer to that. It did make me think about the Oscars and, again, where there are plenty of Oscar-nominated films or important films that both celebrate the film industry see mm. la la land but also critique the film industry and critique the hardships and the challenges and stuff and whether those things make it to those top lists or not and it almost feels like it's not the fact that you're writing a critique that either includes you or doesn't include you mm. people fucking love to read about themselves or watch themselves when they are narcissists and not just that but ultimately you know the film industry fucking love to talk about the film industry and the publishing industry fucking love to talk about the publishing industry so it doesn't really matter if you're saying something good or bad because you're still talking about it right so 
we could probably go on and talk about this book for a lot longer and I'm sure some of you listening to this if you've made it to this point like I really wish you wouldn't so I think it's time for us to um, think about wrapping the show up but before we do I'd like to talk a bit about the title of the book and the cover of the book and titles and covers are very important as guess what is mentioned in the book and as someone who just buys things because they look nice apparently now I think this is a really interesting thing to talk about with this book because it is very striking so what do you think of the title and what it signifies with relation to the book and what do you think of the cover the title is perfect as far as I'm concerned because I think that the phrase blackface Mm. has become a household phrase everyone knows what it means but there is a long history of the the model minority and the the question of defining people as yellow and and also that oh it's it's fine if they're asian and i'm i don't believe any of this i'm just saying that there is a history of that it's a forgotten angle of race relations definitely absolutely and it it became really prevalent over the last few years i think because of the enormous and disgusting backlash that people of asian descent faced during covid and so i think that what it does is unapologetically call out a major issue and it's it's not an issue that is unbelievable in the sense that Blackface you consider very visual and I think even yellowface is sounds like a very visual thing but people are like oh no it's harder to do visually again I don't believe any of this but the idea that it's easier to present a ambiguous sounding name as being of Asian descent is also easier to present in america at least novels as being sort of of native american ancestry and i i like that this book also mentions that but really slams that right on the thing it's not trying to disguise it it's just being like no this is what the fucking book's about the fucking book's about racism and cultural appropriation and you're just gonna fucking deal with it and the book itself is not stark and simple. No, not at all. But the point that it's trying to make around, as we've talked about, racism, cultural appropriation, is clear. I think if you pick up Yellowface, you're not looking. You're not thinking this is going to be cutesy because if the title didn't clear you in, the cover will, or vice versa. What about yeah. you? What do you think? There's a lot to unpack for such a simplistic cover. Yeah, I think you're right. You know this this idea that it immediately sells this cultural appropriation narrative particularly from you know white people taking other people's cultures because guess what there's a lot of that (laughs) but i also think it's interesting because if you take other connotations of the word yellow and this is potentially this whole fucking english student thing of oh what did the blue curtains symbolize they were just fucking blue stop trying to read into it (laughs) But other connotations of the word yellow uh, are, are cowardice. Um, mm. You know, it's, it, you know... The, oh, that's so true. Yeah, this sort of lily-livered... And friendship. Is it? Yellow roses symbolise friendship. Oh, well, there you go. I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't... Well, yeah, that could work with this book. Yeah. yeah. I suppose. yeah. But that's, that's what I took from this, is this kind of cowardice. And the fact that the eyes are looking to one side as mm. well is this kind of a, a version of um, truth. the truth. And I think 
the fact that throughout the whole book Juniper is not really willing to look at what she's done in any great deed she's very willing to pin the blame on other people to blame Athena or blame her publisher or blame people on social media for calling her out for exactly the thing that she's done I think there is there is a cowardice kind of narrative in in the title and in the in the cover so yeah I think the I think the cover and the title are, are great yeah, I completely agree. I think they did just such a smashing job there. Smashing. Smashing. Another person who did a smashing job was... The Domaine Bonnet-Huet... Domaine Bonnet-Huet-Huto, who close. created the Bonnet Orange... Orange Bonnet Orange. Off of the Loire Valley, France, made in 2020. So, Sam, <laughs> what did you think of our orange wine? Our orange wine. For our first orange wine, I was pleased. I wasn't mm. going to say pleasantly surprised. I, I liked it. I thought it was, it, again, it was it was very cidery. We've talked about that already. Very summery. I think sharing a bottle with someone on a night like this is fine. I just wouldn't drink a lot of it. What did you think? Yeah, I will say that I was pleasantly surprised because I wasn't necessarily expecting to enjoy it. And yeah. I did find it very drinkable. I agree with you that I don't, I wouldn't just drink this on my own. It's no. not it's not a session wine and it's not a solo drinking wine unless you're very fancy. But I do f- like the entire time I've drunk it I've been thinking about sitting outside, dining outside with a big pasta salad and a big loaf of bread and just like an awning and having chats and stuff. So I'm going to be very bold and I'm going to give it four grapes. <gasps> because I just think that I was so surprised by how much I enjoyed it. How about you? Very good. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to go as high as a four. Okay. I think I'm going to go for 3.5. Fair enough. So not far off, but just, just yeah, it's not quite... Well, considering that your normal calibre of wine is probably closer to this in terms of white wine, you have your favourites, etc. Whereas exactly. this is a and... standout difference for me. And how about Yellow Face by R.F. Kuang? What is your rating for this book? Ooh, great rating on this. So I, I've gone back and forth on this because I think it's so many different things in one book in such a short space of time. I think I'm so impressed by Kuang's ability to switch genres because Babylon only came out at the end of last year and then this came out like I mean like they were very hot on each other's heels and I think it is like like you you said something before we started recording about it being sort of like a, like a mobius mm. strip of, of thought but sort of vacillating from one to the other and it is that it's really hard to pin down I'm going to give it a 4.5 yeah because I did really enjoy it and I yeah. would recommend it to a lot of people the reason I'm not giving it a five is, like I said, because there's so much about the publishing industry for the first section of the book. I was like, this this could have this could have been condensed, mm. been done slightly differently, and still got the same effects. I think, mm. but everything else, yeah. Shows. How about you? I, as mentioned, pendulum swung between many feelings around this book. The the Mobius, I I use the phrase Mobius a lot when it comes to things where I'm like it's all swirly and it's all connected it's just it's very complicated but Mobius always feels the most accurate to me and this was definitely one of those books and my immediate gut reaction to it was like I just don't fucking know but I know that what I read was good yeah and I think that for me the craftsmanship of this book is one of the things that stands out to it the most because you cannot like any of the characters and 
read it in one sitting. And for a book to be that compelling, they must have done something right. So that's that's a point in its favour already. Yeah. The fact that it's taking on this this satire, the fact that it made you sit in this uncomfortable feeling and consistently, repeatedly challenged you and led you up a little breadcrumb path and then pull the rug out from under you was really, really interesting. As I said at the beginning of the episode, I did not enjoy reading this book. Mm. I had a very lovely time reading this book, but that was not because of the book. (laughs) That was because I was doing a lovely puzzle. (laughs) Uh, But I did... You know, like I, I've already recommended this to people. I'm really glad I read it. I've given it four grapes for all of those reasons, and that, and you know, like I could probably stretch to four four point five, and I probably would, but at the moment I'm just kind of sticking with my initial feeling, which is that yeah. this is a fantastic book, but it did give me an uncomfortable feeling in my spine, not just because it's dealing with uncomfortable stuff, but because also I just didn't. I, it, it's not my favourite kind of book like it's a very subjective thing thrillers are hard anyway and I wasn't totally happy with how the ending landed yeah. and I don't mean June's reaction to the ending I mean the the big reveal moment I wasn't really totally happy with that I thought that was probably the weakest part of the book and so for those reasons I'm giving it a four but I still think that's like that's not like four is a four four is nothing to four is, I thought four is was, an a <laughs> this is a fucking fantastic book and i thoroughly recommend it and it really does make you think so thanks for listening to great culture if you've enjoyed us don't forget to give us a rating if you're listening on an apple device you can also find out more about great culture on our website which is greatculturepodcast.co.uk once i've updated it which i haven't done for about five months but do go and check it out we've got lots of historical content and episodes on there you can also follow us on spotify you can find us on soundcloud you can find us on apple podcasts we're we're, we're everywhere baby <laughs> we're also on social media so we're on instagram at great culture podcast or twitter at great culture pod and We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode to drink some more wine and talk some more shit. Thanks for listening. Bye! Bye.